All right, welcome everyone to One of 200, the independent politics and media podcast. Uh, this is your host, Branko Marchetich, uh, and I'm here with uh, Carl Church. Carl, how are you going? Yeah, good, mate. And we are also joined today uh, by Josephine Vagis. Josephine, how are you going? Good, good, good to be back on One of 200. I love being here. Well, uh, we're very glad to have you, uh, and and we're glad to have you. Uh, I think to offer uh, a, a unique perspective, I think, on some of this this horrible stuff we're seeing uh, around the world right now, specifically uh, in this case in Ukraine. Uh, of course, we don't have to go into uh, what's been going on. I think everyone in the world has kind of been paying attention to to uh, what's happened in Ukraine. Um, a brief summary, of course, a few. I'd say a little under two weeks ago, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin, Russian president, made the decision to invade Ukraine. Um, it, it seems to have so far taken everyone uh, by surprise. First of all, the scale of the invasion. Uh, I think a lot of people expected that, that Putin could and would uh, invade Ukraine, uh, but maybe not quite to the, uh, to the scale uh, and with the kind of, uh, you know, let's say ambitious aims that he's going for, he's going for full regime change and, and going right to the capital. Uh, and it also seems like Putin himself may have been surprised, uh, surprised by the uh, ferocity of the, of the Ukrainian resistance. Um, a lot of people quite, quite rightly uh, fired up over the uh, invasion of their country by a, a, a neighboring country. Um, and who have put up a real fight against um, uh, an invading force. Um, and, and I think also surprised by the response of the Russian people themselves, who have very courageously uh, come out to the streets and, and, and protested night after night all over the country, who uh, in, in, a, in a time of, of a lot of uh, repression after, after really Putin has kind of put the screws on people uh, because of a series of, of um previous opposition protests. And now we're seeing this huge uh, wave of anti-war sentiment in, in Russia. So that has been uh, very good to see. Um, but uh, uh, of course, as we say all this, we also have to realize that this is an incredibly complicated and complex uh, issue um, that at the moment I think is not really served by the media and the political narratives that are out there. Turn this into kind of a very flat black and white narrative of, of good and evil. And of course, that doesn't mean to say that, that Putin's invasion is, is, is not terrible. It is, it's a, it's a flagrant violation of international law and any sort of um, uh, standard, you know, basic understanding of, of morality and justice that we have in the world. But it, it, by sort of casting it in the light that, that a lot of media has, I think we've, we've flattened out some of the nuance and complexity that's involved in this, and which really risks uh, basically repeating the same mistakes that led to this in the first place. And I think we can go into that a little more, but um, I, I'm keen to hear what you guys, you know, what your thoughts have been, um, I guess, watching this uh, in the same way as I have from afar, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and seeing whatever updates are, are happening with the war. What, what is your response? Uh, maybe, maybe Josephine, if you want to uh, uh, take us, uh, take us there first. 
Thank you so much, uh, Branko, uh, for that introduction and giving me the opportunity to speak first. Um, all right, so I want to just uh, premise my, uh, you know, uh, my 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 talk uh, with an introduction to the fact that, um, you know, my area of study and interest is, uh, you know, post-colonialism, anti-imperialism. So, yes, all the sides that Branko said, um, you know, are the ones that we are seeing. Uh, and hearing in the media, um, we are we are hearing about uh, Ukrainian people's resistance. We are hearing about uh, the peace marches in Russia, you know, um, and uh, we are hearing about the international condemnation of Russia. However, there is one side of this debate that is not being discussed. There were, in fact, it's not it's not so small a um, uh, view. Because if you look at the United Nations resolution, 35 nations abstained from voting to condemn Russia for, for in this crisis, in this current crisis. And um, so I think it's important. I, I do understand that um, given the um, uh, given the power of the of the dominant discourse all around us, the media, um, you know, the government discourse around this, New Zealand government discourse. Uh, including the prime minister saying this is the first time, you know, uh, in her generation that she has experienced something close to a war. Which is just wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, when we are surrounded by this discourse, it, I understand that it'd be very, very difficult for the listeners to deconstruct this and to form a balanced view or to form a contextualized uh, view of this uh, situation. So, um, so, for example, uh, if you look at the uh, the accounts of of the thirty five nations who have abstained, um, uh, some of them outrightly rejecting um, this notion, um, they all point out to the fact that this crisis didn't start uh, two weeks ago. In fact, in, in in fact, you know, it started in two thousand and fourteen, um, and uh, the events of two thousand and thirteen, uh, which are you know called the Euro Maidan uh, protests, are quite an important chapter in understanding this, and also understanding what United States role has been in Ukraine after the Second World War, since the beginning of the Cold War. Um, and what, you know, um, and has Ukraine really been enjoying sovereignty over the last seven or eight years? This is another question that we need to ask. And um, uh, Branko also mentioned, uh, you know, uh, the violation of, uh, you know, uh, human rights that we all agreed to. Which countries have agreed to these human rights and how are they fa faring on these human rights? So I don't think that countries have agreed on a standard of human rights. Uh, I don't even think that countries have uh, agreed upon, you know, uh, upholding the sovereignty of nations. Like if you're from the global South, you will be very, very aware of how many times the sovereignty of our nations have been violated um, by our former colonizers or the capitalist, you know, block of the world uh, or the, you know, the empire uh, of capitalism, which is seated in the United States. And um, it's really important. One more thing I will say in this introduction, <laughs> introductory piece is, it's very important to uh, separate the way in which the United States foreign policy works from the common people in the United States. Common people in the United States have 
have little to no say on their foreign policy. Their foreign policy is being determined by the military industrial complex and the, and the interests of the corporations over there. And so uh, what I would like to you know, invite the listeners to do is to just consider, you may reject my arguments, but just consider with an open mind, uh, you know, uh, the context within which this is happening. And also, instead of having a, uh, a completely decontextualized value based sort of judgment on this issue, um, what I would like you to do uh, as listeners is to have an analysis based on um, if you are a socialist, for example, based on the principles of socialism, let's have an analysis of uh, global foreign policy based on, on, on Marxist principles, if you're Marxist, or materialism, right, or socialism, whichever, whichever you know, uh, theory that you uh, follow, or even a feminist theory, whichever theory you follow, use that use one of those theoretical uh, paradigms to analyze the situation rather than a decontextualized value-based analysis, which simply, uh, you know, doesn't go further than Putin bad. Um, okay, so, um, you know, there will be an opportunity for us to, you know, go through this a bit more in depth. So I'm just passing it on to uh, Kyle. <laughs> hey, thank you so much, Josephine. I think that's like that last point, especially is really important because it's not just that it's, a decontextualized um this is the only event it's through a hegemonic lens from the united states um and the majority of western media that we're seeing about it and the outright um labeling of anything that goes counter to that as uh some form of russian propaganda uh and, and it, you know it could come from anywhere um it could I've seen stuff that uh, has come from Ukrainians today. I've seen stuff that has come from Ukrainians and people are now saying, oh, the Russians are making up uh, fake Ukrainians to fact check uh, Western media. Um, we're, we're that many levels deep on the media narrative um, trying to establish itself. So it's not just that this is, it's not merely that this is a decontextualized um lens that we're seeing it through it's very contextualized um and some of that goes back to what you're saying uh josephine about um conceptions of sovereignty in the west um conceptions of imperialism uh and and capitalism in the military uh industrial complex um yeah the, the context is there and i think it, it does us an injustice not to understand that that's the lens that we're seeing most of this information through. You know, we, we've covered um, some of the Ukraine stuff. Previously, we had um, Ukrainian sociologist Volodymyr Shenko on. Uh, he's done a, a range of really excellent interviews about the, the history and the context of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and you can basically find those uh, all over the internet at the moment. Um, so I, I really encourage people to listen to our interview with him or with any of the other number of people that have interviewed him. And if you if you listen to the podcast, you might follow me uh, online as well. And you'll know that I take a very uh, principles or values-based approach to this, which is, you know, I'm broadly anti-war and anti-suffering. But there are definitely multiple factors here that can go really badly um, and 
as you said, Josephine, devolving that all to a conception of uh, not not just even Putin bad, because I think it's going beyond that now to some extent to Russians bad. Um, and what you said about um, the US foreign policy not being like uh, coming from the citizens, it's the same in Russia. And yet we're seeing just some really horrible treatment of Russian people just o- over the last two weeks. And it's really ramped up. And that benefits uh, a, a, I don't even know what to call it. What, what do they call it? The, um, the blob, you know, that kind of media, military, industrial complex um, concept uh, of we have an enemy now. And for me, uh, and, and where I'm kind of coming from in terms of what I think is happening here, um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't want this to happen, but it's just how it is. The probably the most insight, insightful, or the thing that's given me the most insight into it uh, was the interview um, of Hillary Clinton, uh, MSNBC, uh, where she essentially said, uh, "Oh, the Russians made a big mistake in Afghanistan in 1980, and the same's going to happen here." Uh, I was like almost gleeful about it, um, and it was very clear to me then. Um, and it's something that people had been saying previously, and I myself had said that the U.S. isn't interested, and, and until I see evidence otherwise, I'm, I'm going to believe this, the U.S. isn't interested in actually wrapping up this conflict. They want a conflict that lasts for decades, um, that ties up uh, someone that they see as a major, a major power that they never really uh, managed to defeat during the Cold War, and that's horrific. Yeah, uh, what you're talking about there, the Hillary Clinton interview, uh, unfortunately, uh, we, I think we'd love to believe that, that that's just a, a crazy idea Hillary Clinton had. Uh, but the fact is that this is now uh, being, and has been openly talked about as a kind of response to any potential Russian invasion for the past few months, if not even longer. The, the idea has been floating around for a little longer. Uh, and it's now, I think, settling into a place where it's really becoming U.S. official U.S. policy. I think this is basically the the end game, um, at least as far as U.S. officials see it, uh, for this invasion. The idea that by uh, deciding to go full regime change and to, and to uh, knock off the government in Kiev, that uh, Putin is now going to be on the hook for um basically occupying a neighbor a very large neighboring country uh for an indefinite period of time where, where the people resent the occupation where they resist it in um violent ways and and where that resistance is going to be funded by uh the united states and and nato and and, and other western countries um in, in terms of sending weapons in terms of sending supplies in terms of um, giving them training similar to the uh, Hillary Clinton mentions, uh, you know, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, similar to the invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s, where um, the US, of course, ended up funding um, and, and arming and training uh, Islamic extremists who were uh, very useful at the time to go against uh, the Soviet Union. Um, but of course, decades later, uh, that foreign policy um, reared its head in, in the United States in a very ugly way. Hillary Clinton kind of laughs in the interview, and she says, of course, there was some unintended consequence. You know, she's speaking uh-huh. about September 11th. Yeah, she's speaking about the, the, a terrorist attack that 
for a while, that this was the most horrible thing that, that anyone in the United States uh, or even the West really could imagine happening to a Western country. Um, now it's apparently just kind of a, a, a kind of thing to, to offhandedly mention um, as you kind of um, float the idea of, of repeating the same mistake again. Um, I think before we get into the, the causes, which I think are really important to, to talk about, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the responses uh, and the ideas for responses and solutions to this. Because this is one, this idea of let's turn Ukraine into Afghanistan, let's turn Ukraine into an Iraq where the West funds an insurgency that, that uh, fights Russians and, and drags them down into a, into a never-ending war. That's one. Um, we're also hearing uh, uh, calls for a no-fly zone, uh, which I, th I think we've discussed on this show before. I'm not sure if we have. A no-fly zone is a genius euphemism that was created by someone in some military think tank, I can only imagine, or some room in, in the Oval, uh, in the White House. In the Oval Office. Um, for a, <laughs> yeah, a way to, how can we sell people on war when they don't actually want war? What, what, how can we get them to support something that basically is waging and declaring war without them realizing it? And that's what a no-fly zone is. Because what that means is you set up an area where there can be no planes flying, flying in and out, you know, so they can't do bombings and the like. And that means if any plane gets into that area, you shoot it down. And so what, what a no-fly zone means is that uh, the West, whatever, whether it's a NATO country or the US or the UK, whoever's going to be enforcing this no-fly zone uh, will end up shooting down Russian planes if they get in there. And if one of those countries shoots a Russian plane, well, in that case, now there's direct fighting between the United States in Russia or the UK and Russia or some other NATO country with Russia. And NATO policy is if one country gets attacked, every other country comes to that country's defense. And so you would have a World War I style situation, potentially, where uh, what is basically a regional conflict becomes a continent-wide conflict and potentially a worldwide conflict. Before this, China and Russia signed a basically a, a, an alliance uh, where they said there was sort of no limit to their friendship. Um, and uh, China's kind of taken a careful line on this. Um, but there's a very good chance that they come, you know, in, in a uh, conflagration between Europe, Western Europe and, and the United States and, and Russia, China comes to Russia's aid. Then you start to talk about World War III. And, and the thing is that this World War III would come in the context of, uh, it, it comes after the creation of, of the nuclear bomb. When World War II broke out, there were no atomic weapons. Now there are thousands upon thousands across the world, uh, including the United States and Russia alone have something like 5,000 nukes uh, in total. More than enough to kill every single person and living thing on this planet if they were launched, which is what the policy would be. Once a, a nuclear bomb starts traveling, um, then other nukes start traveling because this is the policy of, 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 of mutually assured destruction. The idea is that no one would ever launch a nuke because they know if they did, everyone else would launch as many nukes as they could to obliterate everyone. And so the only way to keep everyone from shooting their nuclear weapons is the knowledge that every, everyone on earth would essentially die. And so I think this is a really important thing to know. Even, I mean, 
World War Three itself, even without nukes, will be bad enough. Just think about how many lives were lost and just the horror of the of the first two world wars, um, and how awful that would be to repeat again. But with the inclusion of nukes now, um, you're looking at something much worse. And so when people uh, flippantly talk about attacking Russians, waging a war to, to stop Russia from attacking Ukraine, yes, the invasion of Ukraine is appalling. It is horrible. We should do something. But there's a reason why we need to desperately, at all costs, avoid a military uh, response to this. Because if, if that's what we take, there is a very good chance that it ends up with the deaths of millions upon millions of people around the world, uh, and, and maybe even worse. And I think that's a really key thing. And I think it's not something that people realize when they're, you know, flippantly calling people Russian propagandists or saying that they're apologists for Putin or yada, 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 all this stuff. They don't think about the fact that, that what the actual consequences of something like this would be just because we disapprove of something and find it terrible does not mean that war and esca military escalation is the answer uh, to that. So that's what I'll say for now um, uh, about that. But I think there's a lot of things we could talk about in terms of how to respond uh, to this that doesn't involve, uh, you know, killing every single living thing on this planet. I just want to pick up on some of the points that you said there, Branko. Um, first of all, about United States funding. So after this invasion, you're thinking about what's going to happen and then United States is going to fund an emergent, insurgent, um, you know, in, insurgent movement um, uh, in, in Ukraine against Russia. But the reality is that United States has already been funding an insurgent movement in Russia since um, 2000, at least 2013. And um, many analysts, of course, you, you can disagree with them, uh, do suggest that, in fact, um, you know, the sovereignty of Ukraine was not lost um, two weeks ago. It was lost on in 2014 when a democratically elected president was uh, overthrown in a, you know uh, in a coup. Uh, they call it a coup. Some people call it a, a protest. Uh, you know we can uh, we can have a debate on that. Um, but United States has been funding um, and supporting right-wing groups, not just since 2013. So if you look at the diplomatic um, sort of history, uh, there, are, there is evidence that right after, right from the beginning of Cold War, United States has been overtly, and EU has been overtly and covertly supporting the right-wing, even the neo-Nazis and ultra-nationalists over there. And um, so that's an interesting question, right? So for me, uh, and, and it comes to the question, like you said, we should do something. Yes, we need to do something. But in order to do something, we need to know what the problem is. And uh, for me, it's very clear in, uh, from my analysis and my study from an, uh, from a, from, you know, from perspective of a, uh, you know, a, a scholar from the global south, um, here the aggressor is United States and uh, NATO. Uh, they have created the situation. And it was not without, how many times have they, um, you know, have they violated their own promises? In, in, in the year 1990, um, United States and European countries agreed to the Soviet Union that they will not uh, move eastward 
past uh, past germany and since 1996 they have violated this multiple times russia has taken a diplomatic route to address these uh, ad address these violations and up, up until now they were they were going by the route of uh, diplomacy and despite this you know united states has been imposing sanctions on russia uh, you know repeatedly right so it, it hasn't been a very uh, it's, it hasn't been a very rosy relationship between Russia and the United States or the West. It has been, in fact, very hostile. And uh, Russia phobia reaches a, you know, a fever pitch every election in the United States. And in fact, there was a, a false Russiagate scandal, which was proven to be false, right? So um, there's a lot of ramping up of anti-Russian hostility in the West. And at the same time, they're breaking their own promises to move further, to to not move further east against the diplomatic wisdom of all diplomats. I'm not just talking about leftist uh, scholars, but I'm talking about the most right wing of, of diplomats, including Kissinger. He predicted that this will, uh, uh, moving eastward would result in a crisis. And suddenly everyone is just acting as, as if all this diplomatic literature didn't exist. I mean, how many diplomats have been warning? Indian diplomats have been warning. Um, you know, Marxist diplomats have been have been saying, "Hey, this is not fair." Like, what does the United States have to do with with Ukraine? I can understand if EU has to do some, you know, have some relations with the Ukraine award. But why is you United States, which is so geographically separate, um, meddling with the affairs of of Ukraine? And they have been since the end, since the beginning of the Cold War. So, in order to understand how we can stop this, we need to understand who's who's the aggressor here. Right. And in my view, the aggressor is the United States, the United States and NATO. And if you look at the history of United States and NATO, uh, this is uh, this is really important for us to understand this. And it's like whenever I say these me and other people say that, you know, look at the history of NATO's NATO's history of, of, of respecting sovereignty. Um, they will say this is what about you know, <laughs> just because just because NATO has done it doesn't mean uh, Putin can do it or something like that. But no, I'm not saying this to justify Putin's actions. Of course, that's horrific. But what I'm saying here is because it's a pattern in NATO and United States policies. And the same pattern has been repeated here. The same thing that they did in Afghanistan by not only funding and training, people think that United States, I mean, some people now have some awareness that United States funded and trained uh, the Mujahideen. And guess what the Mujahideen not only, you know, um, not only later became Al-Qaeda and, uh, you know, we, we just touched upon that and they are now Taliban, but they also ruined the situation in, in, in our border between Pakistan, you know, um, the entire region, our sovereignty has been abridged time and again by NATO and we can see the same patterns being uh, being repeated over there and i, I mean uh, branko you yourself have have reported on this on on how uh, you know there's so much evidence pointing to the fact that uh, united states is, is supporting and and funding um, and arming in fact um, ultra nationalist groups over there and of course it's important to understand the context of ukraine because uh, like any other country it's a complex country and uh, the uh, the 
the president that got ousted, Yanukovych, he was not like, uh, he was not pro-NATO, but he wasn't extremely pro-Russia either. I mean, uh, people can say otherwise, even if you consider him to be pro-Russia. Let's see what what were his actions um, that uh, that made the West, made USA intervene in this situation. The thing that he did is he rejected the deal for loans from EU, which included, you know, implementing neoliberalism. And so in, in implementing, they are what, part of the conditions were raising the prices on uh, the basic necessities of Ukrainian people. And Ukraine is a, is a country that has actually worsened, deteriorated since the end of the Soviet Union. So imposing neoliberalism and austerity on a country that's already facing economic crisis, if I were a political leader, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for that that loan from EU and uh, would you any leftist leader anywhere in the world are you going to accept neoliberal reforms and this is on the back of Portugal and Greece just like being absolutely decimated by similar policies coming out of the IMF exactly and And so if you're a leftist please think about it would you accept taking on a loan to address your financial crisis by putting your own, the poorest people in your country into further crisis. And then, of course, there was a a, a democratic uh, sort of like a a peaceful protest against it uh, from the people, of course, the Ukrainians who who wanted to be part of, you know, the neoliberal EU. Of course, we know how, you know, how powerful the neoliberal discourses and how much people will just, you know, after a point, they just accept it because the global media is just is just uh, dictated by neoliberals and corporations. So uh, a, part, a big part of the Ukrainian population supported it and they started protesting against uh, this particular uh, prime minister, democratically elected prime minister from the eastern side of Ukraine, which represents a lot, you know, the Russian minority people. And, you know, if you're a part of a democratic country, you have to take into interest in, into your heart the interest of the minorities, right? Anyway, the, whichever governments that have come after that have not been doing that. Not only that, they openly declared a neo-Nazi as a national hero after Yanukovych's, um, Yanukovych's term. I mean, uh, please just consider these points, okay? Reject them if you like, but consider them. And all of you here in New Zealand were extremely um, appalled by a few uh, a few protesters um, uh, you know setting fire on the on a playground in front of the in front of the parliament and rightly so right what happened in in Ukraine you you wouldn't believe it so these these um, sort of uh, semi-militia groups, which were supported by the West, they basically um, hijacked uh, the uh, the protests, and they were they became extremely violent. And there are reports that they instigated some of the the mud the the killings of some of the protesters to create you know chaos and there's evidence for this i mean you can have a look at some of these uh, evidence for example i will i will recommend oliver stone's uh, documentary called ukraine on fire from 2016 okay so this is not right now it's from 2016 and already they were talking about the united states um, how bad it, uh, you know the impact of united states meddling in U- ukraine sovereignty is and what these militias did is they they you know basically they uh, unleashed unleashed 
chaos and violence. And you must remember that these are including the, the right sector, you know, um, extremely right-wing um, group. And then guess what the United States did, including McCain and many other US officials, they went to address the protesters in front of the Ukrainian parliament. This sounds Imagine- familiar. Imagine if this happened in New Zealand while the anti-vax protesters are are protesting in front of the parliament. If Putin or if if the Chinese president uh, came and addressed the addressed the uh, the uh, uh, the protesters and supported them, you know, victory to you, we support you. Do you think this is meddling into the sovereign affairs of a country or not? Just have a think about it. So these are the things that happened in in um, in Ukraine. And so I sub- I actually agree with many analysts point that, in fact, the sovereignty of U- Ukraine didn't uh, get abridged or violated uh, two weeks ago. It was in during that coup, which was supported overtly and covertly by the United States um, and NATO. And so if you want this, this, um, this crisis to end, we must, the global community must come together and say that NATO needs to retreat from that area. United States needs to stop. United States and all these um, countries which are, have been traditionally hostile against uh, Russia need to stop arming with lethal weapons um, a country that is within five minutes uh, striking range of Moscow. So the solution to this crisis is for NATO to retreat further to the West and, uh, and honor their own promises. I'm not saying honor other people's uh, rights or humanity, just honor their own promises and retreat from there. I think like there's a, there's a real clear set of points there, which for, for whatever reason, um, possibly just expediency, if I'm being cynical, um, which is all of this is part of the historic record. You know, the, this stuff hasn't suddenly appeared because Russia has started a disinformation campaign. This hasn't all just suddenly started, people haven't started talking about this because Russia has invaded Ukraine. Like Josephine was saying, you know, analysts have been saying this for decades. Uh, this is going to happen. And every, you know, every year, um, you can go back and find lectures, you can find talks um, from, you know, from Pentagon officials, from a, a range of different, and under a range of different lenses, um, from real politic to uh, some forms of idealism. If you keep doing this, this is what is going to happen. Um, and likewise with reporting on insurgency funding from the U.S., likewise with the way that the U.S. treated the, the I guess, the politics and the nationhood of Ukraine um, for, again, for decades, because it's not about whether or not um, they are correct in their actions now. It's about whether or not they can say, no, all of that is, is Russian dif- disinformation. Um, and because we have the largest media apparatus, you're not going to go and find that because we're reporting what we want to report. Um, and that's and we're going to ban everything else um, that might report on, you know, the the actual context of the situation. Um, it's It's been incredibly frustrating. 
to see it just kind of cut loose from history. And and what yeah, like like you said, what a lot of people have been saying would be the outcome. And I think the the most incoherent thing about the way that it's approached is this uh, this casting of Putin as a, a monstrous madman um, who will do anything, who's, who's insane. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going around. Oh, he's probably got dementia or he's, he's crazy in some other way. He's super paranoid. Um, okay, so you know he's all those things. And most recently an Asian, by the way, um, <laughs> the New York Times portrayed him as basically oh yeah um, holy shit so yeah that was the most recent in the in the oriental despot sort of um, narrative from the west uh is putin feeling like genghis khan again kind of kind of shit yeah it's just like really obscene stuff okay cool so you've got this conception of of putin um what okay what is your strategy then is it okay? So your strategy is to like just fuck around. Um, great. Like you got the, you, you know, you're either getting the result that you want because you know you think that he's this way, or he's not entirely this way, uh, and something else has happened. I'm not sure, but like there's this, yeah, real incoherency to to the arguments of why this has happened. Because I think that's there's something that, if anything, um, the US argument is failing failing at, and that is why why has Russia done this? Um, because their only recourse is to make these claims. Yeah. Um, before I get into to respond to some of that, uh, I think one um, source to look at is uh, Ivan Kachanovsky. He's a, uh, a Ukrainian. Academic, he he works in uh, Ottawa. He um, he produced a paper recently um, that that kind of looks at the evidence that came out in the in the trials uh, that followed the Maidan Revolution, and and basically concluded that the evidence points to uh, not that the Ukrainian government necessarily didn't do some of the violence and the, and the protesters that day, but that certainly the the right wing, the far right forces who were uh, sort of joined the protest or used the protest had carried out some of the violence themselves. Um, and, and that's not just, uh, that, that comes from sort of eyewitnesses pinpointing the direction of the shots that they, that they saw and felt comes from uh, the, the nature of the gunshot wounds and other kind of forensic evidence that points to um, you know, police and protesters being shot with the same, same bullets. So that's worth looking in if you, if you want to have a look at what the evidence actually is for the far right's um, uh, uh, potentially instigating uh, and precipitating the, the, the crisis that really led to the ouster of, of Yanukovych. Um, on some of this history stuff, I think it's really important. I mean, first of all, I want to make very clear that Russia is the aggressor here. Uh, I mean, it, it's Russia that has launched an actual invasion of a sovereign country. Uh, so it's the aggressor here. But uh, what's important to understand about how we got here, what, what prompted to do that, is a series of really decades of provocative um, actions by the United States. Um, that's not, again, that's not to say that that's, that's fine. If you have a problem and you're a civilized country, you do not wage war on another country. You do not bully 
a neighboring country. That's that's a completely illegitimate way to solve problems in the 21st century. Um, but it is important to understand what is driving these actions because they were predictable, as you've said. They were um, warned about. And my fear is that if we sort of just go down this uh, narrative that, that you mentioned, Kyle, of it's all just Putin, he's a madman and he cannot be reasoned with and he's just doing this because he's, he's evil, that if and when Putin ends up leaving the presidency, what people uh, in the West will find is that the Russian establishment that replaces him is not going to be any more friendly to the idea of, of NATO expansion and some of the stuff that's been happening. Yeah, Keep in mind um, that Putin was pro, like pro-US as far as that goes. You know, he, yeah. he is the guy that removed communism from Russia. Well, I mean, no, not quite, not quite. He didn't, he didn't remove communism. I mean, the, he continued Yeltsin, that. Yes. Boris Yeltsin removed communism, but that is an important part of the story. So, I mean, uh, the problem I found when I, when I try and explain this to people, because people ask me what in the hell is going on in Ukraine, is that to explain it, it takes about 45 minutes <laughs> uh, to, to give the entire history. But to, to try and keep it short, what happened was the Cold War ended. Josephine, you mentioned the, um, the, the NATO was a defensive alliance against the, the Soviet Union. It was sort of accounted to the Warsaw An Pact. offensive alliance, please. <laughs> well, the, hold on, hold on. Not hold a on. defensive. defensive. Let's whoa, stop whoa, whoa, whoa. this throughout well, the history of alliance. NATO. It was a defensive alliance to, during the Cold War to protect against the Soviet invasion. Um, the problem is that once the Cold War ended, uh, what you had was, A, NATO no longer had a reason to exist. And so uh, the question was, why is it, why is it still even here? Um, second of all, uh, you had uh, Gorbachev being promised by Western policymakers, as you mentioned, uh, that NATO would not move east because that was, of course, considered quite a, a threat to, to Russian security. They said, okay, by the 90s, you have a pro-Western government in Boris Yeltsin, who is uh, at, at the West behest really just uh, neoliberalizing Russia, uh, causes one of the one of the worst economic catastrophes, uh, you know, in modern history. I mean, the the Russian life expectancy fell. Uh, pretty much every metric of, of life got worse for Russians, um, and that's where you got the get the oligarchs who came up because they they basically were able to make a killing out of this. They they were able to essentially steal what was once a communally held wealth and take it for themselves. Now, um, even though you have this pro-Russian, uh, pro-Western government in, in Russia, uh, uh, well, the US decides we're gonna expand NATO anyway. And this was across the board in Russia opposed. Um, it was not just Yeltsin, who was a very good friend of Bill Clinton's, um, but every other person, every other kind of elite in Russia, you know, there's even, Joe Biden's CIA director, the guy currently sitting in the CIA seat, said at the time he was in Moscow and he said, I have talked to every single person across the spectrum here. No one wants this. They all think this is a bad idea. It's not just him. George Kennan, someone who, the, the guy who came up with the policy of containment, the anti-communist policy of containment during the Cold War, the, 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 the strategy that the United States would take to combat the Soviet Union. He says, this would be a grave error of historic proportions. It would inflame Russian nationalism. It would lead Russia to act in the exact way that we would ostensibly be doing this to, to guard against. And then we would say, 
ah, uh, well, look, that's just because that's just the way they are. And of course they're gonna do this. And, and so he basically really predicted this, this crisis. Fortunately, not just him, dozens of diplomats, former senators, so many different establishment figures said this is a horrible mistake. You can go find video and audio of all of this. I, I, I could go, I mean, it would, I could take an hour to list everyone. It, it was done anyway, unfortunately, largely at the behest of the, the, the current president, Joe Biden, he led the effort. Um, that happens, that, that promise is broken. Uh, the other thing that starts happening is NATO, which is formerly a, a there to protect against the Soviet invasion, suddenly without a real rationale for existing, suddenly starts launching wars that have absolutely nothing to do with defending uh, Europe. So you have uh, the bombing of, of Serbia and, and Belgrade in 999 over the secession of Kosovo, which is a very similar circumstance actually to what's happening in Ukraine, although in this case, the US was basically bombing the equivalent of Ukraine to, to, to help the, 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 the uh, region, the secessionist region get up. Um, you have the war in Afghanistan. Again, nothing to do with defensiveness. It's, this is a, a completely different country and a completely different continent. Uh, you later have the uh, regime change operation in Libya, um, which again, uh, there's nothing, whether you think Gaddafi's, whatever you think of Gaddafi, uh, it, this has nothing to do with protecting Europe. It, it was an offensive war that, that removed this leader. And, uh, you know, someone like Putin, Putin is a incredibly ruthless, dangerous man. We, we are well aware of this. He does not, if, if it's in his interests, he will happily violate international law. However, Putin also came in wanting to be, trying to be a, a pro-Western Russian president. He wanted to actually work with the United States on, on things that would have been disastrous, but basically war and terror stuff. Um, you know, he, he tries to make close relations and he was really kind of... Um, uh, uh, glorified and 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 feted by the by the West uh, to begin with. Um, what really changes his thinking about all this is not just seeing that that you know NATO uh, now becoming something entirely different from what it was, but um, the the expansion of NATO up to up to his borders. And then in two thousand and eight, against the advice of basically everyone, other NATO countries, intelligence agencies, George Bush makes this fatal error or this this act of, of really hubris and he says ukraine and georgia two countries that border that border russia um uh they're going to join nato one day even though that it's a very distant uh very distant proposal he says this and the key thing to remember about this is that just earlier that year and you can find this uh in the wikileaks cables that were released the diplomatic cables um, Sergei Lavrov, the current foreign minister of Russia, he, he uh, says to the US, look, we get it. We, we get it. Every country has the right to have, to join its ally an alliance at once, so on and so forth. But just so you know, we consider this a, a huge provocation. We consider this quite a threat to our security. Uh, we consider it a red line. So we, we would, we're asking you not to do this because it would not be good. Um, unfortunately, they did it anyway. And in that year, that's when, when the war uh, in Georgia starts, which it starts, it doesn't have anything to do with Russia, but it, it starts because of internal problems. Putin takes the opportunity to basically come in and he comes onto the side of the, 
separatist region, and he effectively carves out an independent state that gives him a buffer between Georgia, neighboring Georgia, which may one day join NATO, and Russia. That's what you get in Crimea, where Putin take, uses the opportunity of the chaos of Euromaidan to come in and annex Crimea. And that's, I think, what you're getting now, where uh, I, I don't know exactly what his plan was from the beginning, but uh, if you look at what the negotiating demands have been from him, and even, even his public-facing rhetoric, people always point to that speech that, that talks about Russian imperialism, and that, that is obviously a big part of it. But then also the second half of the speech is all about NATO. And so what, what he's trying to do now, I think, is, is force Ukrainian neutrality by force, by illegitimate force. But I think his thinking is, well, they're not going to play by the rules and neither am I. And I'm going to bully this smaller country to guarantee my own security. Now, and just to explain to people the logic of this, because it sounds really awful, and it is, but it's also the way that that kind of great power relations at this stage in history operate. Unfortunately, we don't have really independent institutions that, that constrain people's power. We, we, at the end of the day, international law is, is, is only useful insofar as uh, the, the very strong countries find it useful, you know, and we can see this in US actions. And so unfortunately, the way that the, the, the mindset of people in whether it's the US or Russia or other countries is, they have to think about their security um, and uh, the, the, a good example I'll give you is the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why the Cuban Missile Crisis happened? It happened because the Soviet Union stationed nuclear weapons on Cuba, which was a nearby country. Um, the United States found this so threatening that US officials uh, were about to go to nuclear war over it. Now, you'll notice that I am not justifying the US response, which I think is insane in that, in that instance. But you can see what provoked them to get to this crazy point. And another, another one, which I think this is a, a, a less of a good example, but it gives you a sense of the thinking. Ronald Reagan invaded Granada in the 1980s because they were going to build an airport uh, that the Soviet Union and Cuba were going to use. And he decided this is, too, this is too threatening to our interests. I mean, I think a very different example from NATO, which is a military alliance and involves stationing troops and nukes and missiles. But basically because of that, he decides I'm gonna just invade this country, bomb it to hell, and then get what I want. Um, and so this, this is the kind of mindset that is operating. And so, you know, it, this, this is kind of what, what people talk about with real, real politique. Um, it's, it's a system of thinking and behavior that we ideally need to move away from. But at the moment, it's, it's really the, the way the, the world kind of works in the whole. And you can expect if a country, if a, if a country with a military, the strength of Russia says, this is a red line for us, don't do this. And then that red line kind of keeps getting uh, violated. They're going to respond uh, in some way that they can to basically either demonstrate that it's a red line or to, or to secure their interests. And unfortunately, what that means is that now a, you know, millions of Ukrainians are being bombed and shot at and having to flee their country and all manner of things. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, we, I think this could have been avoided. I think it could have been avoided if there had just been a negotiated settlement yeah. um, in those three months where there was just sort of 
troop buildups and and there were yep since December. But but unfortunately, uh, the, the, you know, and this is not just me saying it. This is there were di- many many diplomats who were saying, yeah, this this can be avoided if we just reach a deal where we just say Ukraine yep. is not going to join NATO, and that's it. It wasn't done, and unfortunately, now we're at this point where you know the the, the real victims are, are the Ukrainians, um, and it's a very sad state of affairs. Just before I um, pass to you, Josephine, I saw that there are. And I think this is good because I think it's really important on the left to to like work this shit out. Um, I saw there are a number of things you disagreed with there, so I want to give you like a good run um, to to get into those. Uh, but I think one really key point again, I, I want to keep going back to this. All of this was being said before the invasion. Um, it's not just sudden Russian propaganda that's just popped up out of nowhere. And it, like this was being said before this state um, existed. Go back and look at what was being said in December last year. Go back another decade. Go back to 2014. Um, go back another decade. Go back to the 2000s. Go back to 2008. Um, all of this exists in the historic record. It was reported on. Uh, there was investigative journalism about it. There were leaks about it. Uh, there were Pentagon officials talking about it. Go and look at it. Uh, but yeah, Josephine, um, there's a range of stuff there. Uh, so get stuck in. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I just want to begin again by uh, reiterating that NATO is not a defensive, it's an offensive um, alliance. It has been throughout the history of NATO. And thank you, Branko, for pointing out many instances, including Libya. And on the point about Putin being dangerous, crazy, you know, um, is it is it useful for us to use these sort of words? Um, how are we? Okay, da- okay, dangerous. Ru- ruthless. Okay. Well, but, but that's they, different for Christ. But why is it that we say that Putin is, uh, you know, why do we always characterize any any leader that's outside the US and EU? It's, you know, uh, very easily we can characterize them as as dangerous, evil, crazy, all these sorts of things. Or in, in this case, in Putin's case, it went up, you know, to a point where uh, he was even described as an Asian um, and uh, his whiteness was removed from, from him because of how evil he is. So there is a, there is a, there's a pattern of colonialism here. Okay, so what I mean to say by that is, is this, is, this is how col- it's, um, you know, if you, if you look at Edward Said's theory of Orientalism, uh, it talks about how anything outside the West is considered to be strange, dangerous, um, um, and, uh, you know, very unstable. Um, and therefore, and what this does, it's not an innocent, it's not an innocent propaganda. What it does, it's, it, it manufactures consent to go and attack them, go and remove them, go and topple them. And this has been done time and again across the world. If you look at Gaddafi, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, you might like him, you might hate him. People in the West, people in the West, they probably don't know anything about Gaddafi. They don't know anything about Syria and Assad and what was the nature of, of uh, Syrian regime. Um, what is the nature of Gaddafi? What kind of policies did he support? You know, Gaddafi is a very flawed leader, but he had universal education, universal healthcare. Even United States didn't have that. So, yes. Yeah, these people are dangerous, but no more dangerous than any Western leader. We never describe Obama as dangerous. You you talked about uh, Putin, uh, you know, being ruthless and doing things in the interest of Russia. Um, 
look at the impact of of Russia on the world and compare it with the impact of of Barack Obama's eight years or Bush's eight years or you know any United States president they have actually been more ruthless and they have created more violence more displacement more death more Islamophobia they even funded you know genocidal right-wing groups in in Latin America so on what basis are we saying some leaders are dangerous and never saying that other others are got what I've written about US policy over the years and I yeah, no, okay. it's not you personally it's, 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 I'm just uh, talking about the generals uh, yeah right. sorry Branko this is not no, okay. directed at you this is at the construction <laughs> the you know the media construction the western construction of the dangerous you know leader uh, mm. who is outside the West. And this is a repeated pattern. And again, you know, like you rightly said, there's so much evidence that states that, you know, NATO's, um, you know, movement towards the East is, is really dangerous. And if you think about it from a Russian perspective, um, what kind of an alliance is NATO and what have they done to regimes that they uh, despise? Have they been peaceful towards them? Can you trust the NATO to be sitting there in a peaceful uh, way? You can't. So is it, you know, what are the options available for for a country? Look at what happened to Libya, right? Like I said, it had the highest human development index rates in in Africa. And then uh, Hillary Clinton swooped down with, you know, with Barack Obama, who won a Nobel Peace Prize. This This is the colonial order of the world. On the one hand, we have the most despicable actions coming from an alliance, which is the seat of global capitalism. This is really important for us to understand. Yes, Russia has oligarchs, but Russia is not the seat of global capitalism. If you think, if you, if you think about a foreign policy from a global south perspective, anyone who's on the left from the global south understands that NATO has a vested interest in uh, in destabilizing and uh, in impeding any grassroots leftist movement in the global south nato and us have been act, have always actively worked towards in you know towards basically destabilizing um impeding any of our grassroots leftist movements in the global south look at what happened to evo morales in 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 bolivia sorry a couple of years ago, the only thing that he said was, hey, we want to nationalize our rich um, lithium sources. Bolivia is the poorest country in South America. This is not good. We have so many resources. We want to redistribute the uh, the wealth from it. And United States has a vested interest against it because United States foreign policy is, is controlled by, uh, you know, the capitalists. And United States is the seat of capitalism. Whereas if you look at Russia, Russian foreign policy. Yes, Russia has done these sorts of incursions in its surrounding areas. But if you look at a global scale, Russia has never been against, uh, you know, has never been fracturing grassroots leftist movements in the global south. In fact, strategically, they have been supporting it. So this is the fundamental difference between the foreign policy of USA and Russia. And this is why we need to distinguish between 
U.S. imperialism and other 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 kinds of purported imperialisms. You know, uh, we can have a debate about that. But United States imperialism is against leftist interests globally, not only outside uh, USA but also within USA. They will fight against all um, leftist, um, you know, uh, what do you say, achievements or any gains that we get anywhere in the world. They will demonize it. They will, they will make sure that it doesn't work. So this is why we have to see USA as a unique threat. And this is the other thing. So what happened in Ukraine is also related to neoliberalization. They wanted Ukrainian economy to be open up for their capitalist class to exploit. And also, uh, just to counter your point on Crimea, what happened in Crimea is, in, in, is the context is important. So after Euromaidan, they were pro, sorry, they were anti-Euromaidan protests among many minority communities because of the utter nationalist sort of nature of them. What if RSS, you know, was spear, spearheading this, this huge protest that's threatening minorities? Um, how would they feel? So there were many anti-Euromaidan protests and one of them was in Odessa. And what happened in Odessa is the anti, sorry, the pro-Euromaidan people marched in armed and they, and they basically, uh, you know, put a siege on these uh, peaceful protesters and 43 of them were, were burnt alive because they took refuge in a big building which was burnt to the ground. And so then the people in Crimea, which has, you know, uh, traditionally been pro-Russia, were totally alarmed by this. And that is the circumstance that led to uh, this annexation of Crimea. Um, and so that's an, an important thing to understand because the people over there were extremely scared. What is this nationalist government going to do to us? We are minorities. In their idea of Ukrainian nationalism, we are not included. We are excluded. So these factors are also important to consider. But fundamentally, what I would urge, you know, leftists in the West to, to consider is the USA and NATO have been proactively disempowering our grassroots leftist movements in the global south ever since you know uh, not just the beginning second world war before that what is colonization colonization is just capitalism extending over ter territory right so imperialism the highest stage of capitalism if you're a leftist use theory imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism and um, and and neocolonialism is the highest stage of imperialism and what we are seeing here in these narratives in these black and white narratives about this is again the repetition of that um, neocolonial world order where there's only one one worldview um, that gets mileage or you know gets to be said and today when i checked um oliver stone who is like a very respected award-winning american uh, serious documentarian his his documentary has been taken down from youtube so this is the kind of censorship that the West is imposing on any sort of opinion that goes against uh, their views. You know, I don't think this needs to be like a debate sort of thing. I just wanted to, you no, know, share I, my views. I think it's important so, to have those views out there. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing wrong with, I think, I think, talking about this stuff. Yeah, because I think this is one of the other issues just in general, um, you know, when we're conceiving things, and especially uh, on the Western left, um, is we're expected to have like one 
uh, miasma of of opinion. Um, we're actually allowed to have different views. We're allowed to have like pretty views that are quite far apart while still having the same principles and values. Uh, and I think it's especially important to have those other views out there when it's so incredibly clear that they are getting actively censored um, and given no chance to be aired uh, in the general global coverage of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, just on the, the point about you know Putin, the reason I, I try and tell people that to think about him more as a very ruthless uh, figure rather than the kind of Hitler-like madman I think those are, yeah, actually bring it down, a, try to bring it down a stage. Well, it's an important distinction, and I'll tell you why. Because with Hitler, um, if you look at his, not just his public-facing rhetoric, but actually his demands, like saying at Munich, what he was demanding, what he wanted was just constant expansion of Germany's borders. Um, and, and, and that was the reason why it was impossible to negotiate with him. Because, well, one was because he was very, you know, very much... A madman, uh, Hitler was. He 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 was. He would continually take risks to to get what he wanted, which was essentially basically domination of the world by Germany, um, uh, and and you know failed to kind of understand his own limitations. Um, I think Putin certainly is you know in this case seems to have really miscalculated. So uh, it's not as if he's infallible or anything. But I think his his uh, demands here are a little bit different. I, I think if you look at what he's actually been demanding in you know these negotiations, it's basically he wants Ukraine to to be a neutral state, to be a neutral and demilitarized state, so that it doesn't end up in NATO's um, well as part of NATO, doesn't end up being a security threat. Uh, now the reason why it's important, why it's an important distinction, is because you could negotiate with one. Isn't it's possible to end this war by creating some sort of mutually acceptable security arrangement for Europe um, that could end the war? Uh, could have ended, could have ended it before it began. Could yeah. have ended it before exactly. Could have ended it before it began. Could have been as, avoided. As, as many diplomats are saying, there's a there's a, a Quincy Institute has a, a website responsible statecraft. There's a scholar called Anatole Levin. Uh, in January, he convened. Uh, I think dozens of former Western diplomats to, to talk about this. They said at the time, we don't think Putin's made the decision to invade, um, but to stop him from invading, the West is going to have to do more to respond to his kind of negotiating, his opening negotiating bid than they have at this point. Which was, they, which they is, and they've done nothing. They did nothing to respond. And they, to didn't, they didn't. They, they, just, they literally just didn't respond. They Well, they, they responded. They said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to let NATO, uh, we're not going to uh, say that there's a limit to NATO coming into Ukraine, but we will maybe uh, negotiate around certain missile placements. Um, so, you know, which fine. Okay. But that's not the, I think that's not the core. Six minutes issue. away from Moscow, not five minutes away. Final off. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, <laughs> um, basically I think that they, they were kind of, it was a game of chicken. It was like, well, look, if you want to invade, you know, let's see if you got the the, the stones to do it. Um, at the end of the day, we're not going to suffer anything from it. You will, and these Ukrainians will, who we don't really care about. I think that's so um, key as well, that the US and NATO do not give a shit about Ukraine, uh, from a, unfortunately. at the very least in a strategic sense. Um, no, and yeah. this constant, like, barrage of media uh, puffing Zelensky up, you know, like I think the, the UK parliament gave him a standing ovation this morning. Um, you get constant like pieces in the media talking about how what a hero he is. Um, 
And, you know, he's he's calling for like, there's no flies. And he's like, give us some help. And we're just like, nah, sorry, bro. Um, well, th- this, this is your is fight, the, not ours. Which is the kind of terrible thing because as, as a, again, a lot of mainstream foreign policy thinkers were saying before and after this invasion, they were saying the US position here makes no sense. Because on the one hand, you're saying, we refuse to say you're not going to come into NATO, but at the same time, uh, uh, sorry, we sorry. On the one hand, they're saying we refuse to rule out Ukraine uh, joining NATO, but also they will not join NATO anytime soon, and it's not going to happen. God knows for how long. And at the same time, also, here's twenty thousand troops and millions of dollars right. in lethal aid. But also, if you do do anything we're not going to fight back also. So it was essentially the, basically all but inviting yep. Putin to try as like an invade uh, and, and, you know, leaving basically Ukraine flapping in the wind, which is, which is yeah. the worst part of it all. Um, so, you know, again, I think it's possible to have a negotiated settlement. I'm not the only, it's not just me saying it. This is a lot of smart foreign policy analysts who are not pro Putinists by any means. Uh, I think it's possible to have a negotiated settlement here in a way that it was not possible fundamentally with Hitler. Um, I, I think the in terms of the, the 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 you know different kinds of imperialisms. I think you know we may have to um, have some disagreements on that. Uh, I think though, whatever our disagreements, the the most important thing is that we do condemn any sort of violation of international law like this. In the same way that we would condemn the Saudi invasion of, of Yemen. In the same way that that just because say. If China ever made an alliance with, say, uh, Honduras, uh, that I, I would not just, you know, want, want to be in the position of saying, well, a US war against them for this reason or some sort of meddling is, is okay. I know, I know it's not what you're saying, but I think it's important to have this kind of moral consistency around what is okay behavior and, and as in international relations. Then the last thing, I don't know how long we're going for. It looks like uh, we need to wrap up pretty soon, even though this is a thing, huge conversation. <laughs> it is a very huge conversation. The last thing I would say is just uh, in terms of just the responses that, that to, to this. Uh, again, the, the military stuff is, is I think, a, a horrible idea for multiple reasons. It's horrible for Ukrainians. It's horrible for the world who that, that, that would be suffering in a, in a nuclear war. I think it'll be horrible also given the, just the economic disruption that it's going to cause and is causing. Um, and so a military solution, I think is not going to help things. Um, if we do find want to, want to respond in some way to, to sort of show our disapproval and to, to deter future action. One thing I've suggested previously, and I think this is a very important thing is this really shows the importance of transitioning away from fossil fuels. Why did Putin believe that he had the freedom to act in the way that he did? Uh, it was because he has a huge store of oil and gas that he's sitting on, that he knows that the rest of the world requires, that he knows that basically, well, at least he thought that no matter what he did, um, at the end of the day, Europe and other countries were still going to rely on him for this, fu- the, the, the energy source that basically undergirds our entire modern life. Um, and it's the same reason why Saudi Arabia for seven years has been fighting a, a gruesome borderline genocidal war in Yemen um, with full Western support, US, UK, France, other countries. Now, of course, this has gotten no 
Yeah, yeah. Don't um. Sorry, if you if you want to be refugees from Yemen, sorry, not taking any extra refugees. Right. Yeah. No one's changed their Twitter profiles to Yemeni flags. None of that. That this war has been going on for for seven years with with very little. And the reason why Saudi Arabia has been able to do it is because again, they know that basically they have any uh, you know pardon my language, but they have any president in the U.S. by the balls because they can say, well, if if you ever say anything or do anything against us. We start cutting oil production and you lose an election. So good luck with that. So, you know, how much longer should the world be held hostage by despots who happen to sit on a store of fossil fuels? I don't think it's a good idea. I think, I think even if you're for whatever reason somehow not uh, worried about the destruction of all life on this planet, the unraveling of civilization that a climate catastrophe will bring, you know, then maybe think about the short and medium term, medium term uh, geostrategic interests here, where you know you want to deter future um, autocrats from from launching you know wars or any other kind of violations of international law. So I think these are the best solutions to look at. You know, this is not by means the only one. There are other imaginative non-military solutions that we can come to 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 sort of respond to this. And again, We're plenty of these have been covered around. previously. Yeah, exactly. And then to bring people to the table and have some sort of settlement that will not just involve Ukraine and Russia, but also involves the US and the West, because that's that's what this war is really partly about. Yeah, I just um, I just think that um, the reason for this war was not because, um, you, you know, Russia has oil reserves, um, you know, that might be a factor that, you know, uh, gives sort of emboldens. But the reason is, you know, I think Russia was cornered. Um, um, uh, through the, you know, uh, through the continued advancement of a hostile military power uh, towards its um, its borders and um, with a history of intervening in sovereignty of nations, right? So it's not a new thing. They have been intervening in sovereignty of nations and they have been, uh, under, you know, um, against, they have been flouting, uh, USA and NATO have been flouting international law again and again and again. Right now they're flouting, uh, you know, international law as we speak. They are violating the sovereignty of multiple nations uh, they're bombing Somalia. They are, you know, they are supporting Israel, which is bombing Syria and uh, in, and co- conducting ethnic cleansing in, in Palestine. Um, they are, you know, they are arming to the brim uh, Saudi Arabia, like you said, near genocidal violence. And, and uh, you know, the whole, the whole episode has shown, um, again, the Eurocentrism and the racism of the world where, you know, the victims uh, from Europe are considered, you know, are, um, are given more uh, airtime and more media space than the people who are, you know, the victims of, uh, of, of the, you know, Western foreign policy in the global south who are not white, right, who, who are outside Europe. Um, and what I, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, please have a look at, you know, the Georgian history as well. Uh, what happened in Georgia? Uh, you, you would be interested in, in knowing uh, how United States basically groomed this guy called Sakshavili, uh, who, who was a Georgian president, and later he became the, he became the governor of a region in Ukraine. Imagine. So, um, you know, I just invite you to, to look at these critical perspectives of Western narrative and also um, about Syria. I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you to look at some of the critical perspectives on the war in Syria. Uh, this is to, the, to our listeners. Um, 
for example, the whistleblower reports on the uh, chemical attacks, um, which basically say that there's no evidence that uh, Assad did it. Um, have a look at those uh, those evidences, and and again and again and again, USA is is is. Um, is, is saying lies, is, is creating false propaganda, creating uh, these situations that uh, manufacture consent for war. And so uh, please be aware of, you know, please be um, open to critical and, uh, perspectives uh, on these issues. And, and just be, think twice when United States is saying a particular thing, United States um, um, sort of war machine is saying, is saying something. And I just want to add here that United States has been, you know, giving military aid uh, to, which has already been mentioned, to the scale of 2.5 billion since 2014, which includes uh, lethal weapons. Um, yeah. And the whole situation right now, we are standing in solidarity with the Ukrainian people, but at the same time, we must be standing in solidarity with the brown people and the black people who are being oppressed, whose sovereignty is being violated again and again as we speak. It's not even like in the past, right now. And yet the sanctions only apply uh, to any country outside US and EU. That's the other topic I want to talk about. United States is not only violating our sovereignty through direct military action, but also through, through imposing unilateral sanctions. Um, some studies say that one, one third of the global population in the global south, uh, you know, predominantly located in the global south, are under sanctions, the majority of which is in Africa. Yeah, and those are just normal people, everyone. That's yeah. no, you know, it doesn't do anything to the, to the people in power that the US ostensibly is trying to drive out. And just to people in the West, you know, these people that are oppressing, uh, you know, nations and countries, destabilizing entire regions, funding far-right militia groups uh, in many countries in the world, in Central America with the Contras, in Afghanistan with the Taliban, in Ukraine with including the right sector. The, they're the same people who, they're the same institutions or the same structures that are oppressing the working class in the West. So people of the world, we need to unite against the military industrial complex of United States that has been, you know, um, disempowering leftist movements, both in the West as well as in the global South. And so there is a clear distinction, in my view, between uh, US foreign policy and other countries' foreign policy. Um, yeah, uh, those are some of the points that I want to make. Just, you know, I'm just inviting you, I'm imploring you to consider uh, the critical perspectives and also the histories of the global South, uh, how the United States has, has, just think about it. So if you want to spread, uh, you know, capitalism, if you want to gain access to the markets and the labor of a country, uh, what, what kind of forces do you support in those countries? It's always the right-wing forces. The left-wing forces are always against it. And this is fundamentally the nature of capitalism. And uh, United States foreign policy, are, you know, sort of manifests that in the worst forms. Uh, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which is that uh, I think quite uh, rightly, everyone's been horrified by seeing all these uh, this video footage, photos, stories about the, the fighting in Ukraine, the violence uh, being carried out against Ukrainians. Um, and, and, you know, it's not, for one, it's, it's encouraging to finally see the, the impact on actual ordinary people being put front and center of a war 
which doesn't always happen. In fact, it doesn't often happen, does in not. Fact. Uh, and I wish that we would do that uh, more often. But more importantly, I think as you're watching this stuff and you're watching and you're appalled by the scenes that you're, you're seeing from, from what Russian forces are doing in Ukraine, I think bear in mind that this is what war looks like. This is what war is. And this is exactly what it looks like when it's countries that we find ourselves more culturally uh, aligned to that do them. Um, and that's exactly why every one of these wars, whether it's started by, by Putin or whether it's started by Trump, you know, when he ends up winning in 2024. Uh, <laughs> um, Horrible sign-off, Franco. Please, we have enough, we have enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> a little depressing. Again, it's a it's failure of the centrism that's going to do that, by the way. Let's say failure yeah. of the liberal yeah. <laughs> yeah. politics. Well, look, if it's not Trump, it's going to be, it's going to be some Republican. Or it's going to be some Democrat. There will be another war started, uh, unfortunately, by the U.S. government. And remember that the scenes that you're seeing now are not unique to Ukraine. They're not unique to Russian forces. This is what war always looks like. And it's why it's deadly important that we now use this to, to, to avoid uh, embroiling ourselves and to, and to end the, the suffering that we ourselves are responsible for, that, that the lawmakers that we vote into power are themselves responsible for. Remember that New Zealand, unfortunately, because uh, by virtue of its alliance with the United States was, was uh, very much on the side of the aggressor um, back in 2001, uh, when we sent troops, uh, when we sent forces into Afghanistan, uh, when we sent engineers to Iraq to show our support for that uh, war of aggression. Those are, I think, shameful episodes in New Zealand history. Um, and I think we need to, by reminding ourselves how we felt when we watched this particular war, this particular crime going on, that we will in future avoid making ourselves party to, to, to uh, wars and crimes that are launched by others um, and to, to keep ourselves clean, to keep our consciousness clean, to keep ourselves principled. I think keep that in mind. Uh, what you're seeing now is, is not unique to Ukraine and, and you should need to be appalled at, at every other thing um, and, 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 and support, you know, getting out of it. I, I think I've, I've lost steam now. I'm tired. It's, it's midnight where I am. But um, I want to thank you guys for, for an interesting discussion. I think hopefully everyone's going to get a lot out of it. Um, I want to again send, uh, you know, all of our thoughts and solidarity to the Ukrainian people um, and who are, who are suffering greatly right now and, and to everyone else who is suffering from all manner of terrible uh, actions by, by larger, larger forces in the world. Um, I don't know if you guys want to add anything, but uh, if not, um, I think that's, that's going to be it. If you just wanted to give um, people where they can find you, uh, Josephine, um, in case they yeah. want to get in your mentions and, um, and ask you more. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, it's, my Twitter handle is just, it's, called, it's people, not profits. Um, but I've, it's, the spelling's not correct. Maybe you can just include it with the link of the... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll link to you in the blurb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah apart from that you know uh you can find some of my previous um um podcasts with with one of 200 which i think are still relevant um the people's vaccine one for example again you know where this, the same people 
the same countries are uh, are the ones that are causing the suffering uh, for the global south, standing against a sharing of vaccines. It's the same countries, you know, European Union, the United States. Again, they're standing for the interests of their capitalist class against the interests of their own people, right, to end the pandemic globally. So yeah, have a look at the one of 200 uh, podcast about uh, people's vaccine as well. Hey, thank you so much. Uh... Josephine, for, for joining us. I think it's really important to have uh, a range of views on the left. Um, and you know, Branko and Just, uh, Josephine are, are two people whose views I really respect. Uh, and there were clearly some, some disagreements there. And I think that's great. I think it's really important um, because we all do come from, from different uh, backgrounds. Uh, we're all interpreting stuff in different ways. Uh, and if we're unable to have these discussions um, and be adults about the differences in our opinions, we just outright lose. Like we, you know, no, nothing, nothing gets fixed, and the overwhelming um, kind of powers that be that are already driving a lot of the conflict uh, globally just get a free ride. So yeah, thanks again. Uh, thanks both of you for uh, kind of giving your opinions and your your lenses to the current Ukraine crisis. This has been another uh, episode of One of Two Hundred. Uh, share it around, uh, give us some likes, come and see us on Twitter, uh, 1of200.nz for everything else uh, that we do. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass up full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass up full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism you don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism No, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism Oh, you don't hate Mondays, no